Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 19 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the groundbreaking management rights company that completely transformed the business side of rock and roll in the 1970s, becoming synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. I had heard about Piccadilly Circus and Dilly Boys, and so I would go down to Piccadilly Circus to look at the pretty boys who were there for sale. I've always been fascinated by rent boys, and I love that term. In America, we called them hustlers. In England, you call them rent boys. Main Man was formed by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Leah, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop and David Bowie. The first time that really I got totally interested in going clubbing was a Bromley club where I grew up called the Bromwell Club. And it had links with London in as much that after bands had worked in London or American artists had been over and worked the London clubs, they'd come out to the suburbs and hit places like Bromley. And the Bromwell Club was the club around for us in Kent. In this episode, we're continuing our visit at home with Dana Gillespie, reading extracts from her memoir, Weren't Born a Man, which was the title of her first Main Man album. So it's a great opportunity to hear about her adventures with Main Man. In this chapter, Dana recalls the period after David and Angie had moved from Haddon Hall and were now living in Chelsea. From the moment we met, Angie and I were like soul sisters, and it was great to have another really good friend that I could hang out with. When I was in Superstar, she and Bowie were in a rented house in Oakley Street, Chelsea, only a short stroll down the road from me. There wasn't much special about the house except that the bed was in a sunken section in their bedroom called The Pit by Angie. People would sit around and carry on talking while David and Angie lay on the bed and it was almost as though visitors were being granted an audience. Of course, other things used to sometimes happen in The Pit, but I'm not saying any more. <laughs> Mark Bolan would visit, and I remember David and Mark often being together, sometimes at my place or at Oakley Street, lying on the floor, cutting up magazines or books to create ideas for lyrics. This was William Burroughs' cut-up technique, famously demonstrated by David in the Alan Yentob BBC television documentary, Cracked Actor. The basement flat beneath David and Angie's place was occupied by David's clothes designer, Freddie Baretti, and his girlfriend, Daniela Palmer. This was very convenient for David, who could pop downstairs to get his clothes fitted, and often when I arrived at the house, I'd find David being measured by Freddie for a new outfit. Many of the costumes for David and the Spiders during the Ziggy period were made by Freddie. Angie would go down to Liberty, the high-end fashion store in Soho, and come back with brightly coloured materials for Freddie to create the costumes with. On the famous Top of the Pops appearance when David sang Starman, Freddie made David's quilted jumpsuit and the costumes for the Spiders, and he also made David's ice blue suit that he wore in the Life on Mars video. 
David had wanted to promote Freddie as a singer in a band called Arnold Corns and gave him the stage name of Rudy Valentino. They issued a single featuring early versions of Hang On To Yourself and Moon Age Daydream, both of which were to appear on the Ziggy Stardust album and a follow-up single on which Ronson, Trevor Boulder and Woody Woodmansey all played. The basic problem with the whole project was that Freddie couldn't sing. He had the looks but sounded awful and the project was soon abandoned. David still, however, liked the idea of having his songs performed by an alter ego and everything changed for him on the 6th of July 1972 when he performed Starman on the aforementioned Top of the Pops. In August 1972, I went to see David and the Spiders rehearsing with Lindsay Kemp at the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park and stayed on to see one of the shows. The stage was covered in scaffolding with ladders leading up to different levels from where David would sing while Lindsay's mime troupe contorted their bodies around the set. You can see moments from the show in Mick Rock's promo video for John I'm Only Dancing, which he was filming when I was there. In January 2020, I was invited to perform at a Bowie tribute event in Rome and shared the stage with two dancers who replicated the dance moves of the Kemp group all those years earlier. My superstar commitments meant that I wasn't able to see more of Bowie's shows on the Ziggy Stardust Aladdin Sane tours. His touring schedule was intense, taking in trips to the States and Japan as well as around the UK, and I would sometimes go a couple of months without seeing him. However, I was with him and DeFries the day before the famous Hammersmith show on the 3rd of July 1973, so I knew in advance that David was going to kill off the character of Ziggy. Whilst my understudy sang the part of Mary in Jesus Christ Superstar at the Palace Theatre that night, I joined the crowds in Hammersmith to see Ziggy's last stand, and I count myself lucky to have been there to witness it. Poor Woody and Trevor didn't know what was going to happen until they were on stage and heard the this is the last show we'll ever do speech, which must have been awful for them. The concert was filmed by Don Pennybaker, the same guy who made the Dylan Don't Look Back film in 1965. A party was held at the Café Royal off Piccadilly Circus straight after the retirement show. The evening became known as The Last Supper and there was now a cocktail bar at the Café Royal marking the event appropriately named Ziggy's. It was a star-studded affair which included the McCartneys, Mick Jagger, Lou Reed, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, Elliot Gould, Tony Curtis, Ryan O'Neill... Rod Stewart, Keith Moon, Jeff Beck, Cat Stevens, Barbara Streisand, Sonny Bono and many others. There's a nice picture of me and my mates taken that evening where I'm sitting with Jagger and Lou Reed, David and Rono, together with Jeff Beck, who had played a couple of songs with the band at the Hammersmith show. Allegedly, he was so unhappy with his performance that he insisted that these numbers were deleted before the show was released as a record and video. In the previous 18 months, David and the Spiders had performed almost 200 shows, starting in small venues such as the Toby Jug, the pub in Tolworth, Surrey. After crossing the States twice and playing nine shows in Japan, they finished an extended tour of England and Scotland by playing regularly two sold-out concerts a night. David was knackered, and it was agreed that a planned tour of the States would be cancelled. 
A few months later, when David was recording the Pinups album, Angie and I flew out to France and stayed with them at the Chateau. It was a fantastic old place, not too far from Paris, but in the middle of nowhere. Chopin and George Sand had lived there in the past, and Van Gogh had painted it, well, pictures of it to be totally accurate, and in the 60s it had been converted into a residential recording studio. Elton recorded several albums there too, including Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and it was getting a great reputation in England as the place to go and record. Bowie went back a few years later to record his Low album. There was always a rumour that it was haunted, but I didn't see anything when I was there. Angie and I flew in on a Sunday morning and stayed for about 36 hours as I had to be back on stage with Jesus on Monday evening. Although we weren't there long, Angie and I managed to act outrageously. While we were at the chateau, we hung out with the band and ate with them and even sat in the control room for a bit, but I can't remember which songs they were recording. The album was a collection of hits by David's favourite musicians from the 60s, and The Who, Pink Floyd, The Easy Beats, Them, Mojos and other great bands from that time. The story was that David simply didn't have any new material to record, having just completed his breakthrough 18-month Ziggy Stardust Aladdin Sane tour but still he had to satisfy his contractual obligations to produce another album. Getting David together with Twiggy for the Pinups album cover shot was a great idea. The picture was taken by Justin de Villeneuve, who was Twiggy's husband at the time, and was originally intended for the cover of Vogue, until David said he wanted it for his record sleeve. David and Twiggy's masks for the photo were done by a really good friend of mine called Pierre Laroche. He was responsible for a lot of David's makeup in the Ziggy Stardust Aladdin Sane period, including the golden sphere David wore on his forehead and the iconic red and blue lightning bolt painted across Bowie's face on the cover of the Aladdin Sane album, and later on he did the makeup for the Rocky Horror Show. Pierre lived near me in Edith Grove and I used to go and see him occasionally. He was a very striking looking guy with long hair and he spoke with a strong French accent. Men didn't have makeup artists like Pierre at that time, so what he and David did was quite groundbreaking, so much so that Mick Jagger hired him to do his makeup in the 1975 Rolling Stones tour. On the back of the Pinups album were photos taken by Mick Rock along with David's handwritten notes. Quote these songs are among my favourites from the 64 to 67 period of London. End of quote. This was the time when the two of us would spend hours hanging out together in the coffee bars of Soho, listening to the latest hits. My favourite song on the album was the single Sorrow, originally recorded by the Mersey Beats, or the Merseys as they later became known. I saw David perform it at the Marquee in what was known as the 1984 Show, a TV special made for American television in which he sang to his good friend Amanda Lear. She was a very glamorous blonde who was a regular in the gossip columns due to her well-publicised friendships with various rock stars. There has always been a rumour that she'd been born a man and had undergone a sex change in 1963, allegedly paid for by Salvador Dali. Angie once told me that she'd had some kind of fling with David, but I can't confirm or deny this. Bowie had always had something of a penchant for the exotic. 
if that is the right word for Amanda. A couple of years later in Berlin, he hooked up with her friend, the transsexual Romy Haag. That was about the time when Angie went out there to try unsuccessfully to salvage some kind of friendship with him when their marriage was falling apart. But going back to the Marquee show, it was filmed over three days, but I only went to one of them. Lionel Bart was my escort for the evening, which once again got the press hopelessly confused. Melody Maker reported a showbiz romantics of the year. Lionel Bart and Dana Gillespie made their dramatic entrance. Well, my aside is, of course, Lionel was gay. Everyone knew that, but obviously not the Melody Maker. Much more interesting was David's duet on the old Sonny and Cher song, I've Got You, Babe, which he sang with Marianne Faithful. She wore a nun's outfit that was open at the back, showing everything. It's not obvious when watching the show itself, though it was clearly very distracting for Ainsley Dunbar, who was trying to play the drums behind her. People have often asked me what it was like to be around David in 1972 and 3, when Ziggy Mania took off and he became one of the best-known pop stars in the country. The strange thing is that at the time I didn't really see any change in him at all. He was just a good friend who happened to be doing rather well. Admittedly, I wasn't with them every day, but when I used to visit, most Sundays, both David and Angie were the same friends as before. While it was obviously an exciting time for David, who was at long last finding fame and success after many years of failure, to me he was still the same David Jones that I'd known for the past nine years. It was as if David Bowie's Siggy Stardust was an alter ego, who would appear when he was out in public or performing, but he'd be left outside when he came home. A lot changed when he moved to America, but not yet. One of Tony DeFries's sayings was that if you wanted to do anything in the music business, you had to go to America and make it there. David was obviously more ready to go than me, as he'd had several big hits and was fast becoming one of the top stars in Britain. My superstar commitments meant that the Weren't Born A Man album hadn't yet been released, as there was no time for me to promote it. As a result, it was agreed that David would go ahead and I would follow on later to America. He moved into a huge suite in the Sherry Netherlands Hotel overlooking Central Park, one of the top hotels in New York, together with Angie, Zoe the baby and his nanny Marion. Things were hotting up in America for Mainman and Bowie and I began to feel left out and stranded while all my pals were ravening up in the Big Apple. In 1973, DeFries finally arranged for me to go to New York to sign my contract with RCA Records. RCA was then one of the biggest record companies in the world, with Elvis Presley on their books, amongst many others, and I was looking forward to meeting the head of the company. When I was finally presented to Rocco Langanestra, president of RCA Records, I told him how pleased I was to be signing to his label, as they had three artists I greatly admired under contract. Naturally, Elvis was one, but I mentioned how much I liked Jerry Reed and Charlie Rich. Rocco looked rather surprised because although he knew that Jerry Reed was a wizard country and western guitarist, he hadn't heard of Charlie Rich. This was quite shocking to me as Charlie had recorded one of my favourite songs, Mohair Sam, and it seemed odd that the boss of the record company wouldn't know the name of one of his artists. Rocco called in his secretary and asked about Charlie Rich and she returned some minutes later saying, I'm sorry, sir, his contract ran out three weeks ago, so he's no longer with us. This was maybe a warning sign that RCA Records weren't going to give my new album the promotion it needed. 
Nevertheless, I felt pretty confident that Main Mad would always be there to give them a push. As for Charlie Rich, the moment he changed record label, he had a huge smash hit with Behind Closed Doors. Sometimes a change of record label can make all the difference, but it does help if the man at the top knows what's happening at the bottom. But Rocco was kind enough to give me all of Elvis's RCA albums and arrange for me to see Elvis perform live at the NASA Coliseum just outside New York City. It was the early 70s and he was starting to get a little bloated, but it was still a good time to see him in fine voice. Somebody from RCA took me and we had a really good seats. And towards the end of the show, Elvis said something like, I'm staying at the Holiday Inn round the back. He didn't actually say his room number, but he definitely let it be known where he'd be later, maybe hoping that all the girls would rush round there after the show. It could have been just a ploy, of course, and he might have been staying in another hotel and said it just to get them to the wrong place. Knickers were being thrown on stage while he was singing, although I didn't throw mine. <laughs> When Weren't Born a Man was finally released, it was agreed that I should initially promote it back in England and I was sent off around the country to appear on local commercial radio stations with Angie alongside me. I was quoted in one of the music papers at the time as saying, we'll be touring Britain, then Europe for six weeks before going to America for another two months. Angie will make sure I avoid all the pitfalls. I'm such a sucker. I will have to be guarded in case I meet the wrong people. Saying I was a sucker does seem rather an unfortunate choice of expression, now I look at it. May may have to find things to keep Angie busy and to stop her spending too much money. The idea of sending her out on tour with me was to keep her out of David's hair so he could carry on getting up to mischief in America. He certainly became pretty wild when fame arrived and, like any new rock star, he took every opportunity to satisfy his sexual appetite. Angie and I set off on tour round UK and Europe armed with copies of the Andy Warhol single. It was just the two of us on the road, occasionally accompanied by a man from the RCA promotions team. A series of appointments was arranged for us and all we had to do was be at the radio station at the appointed hour. What an absolute hoot. We would walk in both dressed provocatively and would literally see the disc jockey thinking, holy shit. We would egg each other on to be naughty and could see that the DJ was worrying about what we might say on air. It was loads of fun and we really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I don't think it actually helped to sell many records. Although she called herself Angie Bowie, she was, of course, actually Angie Jones, as David never legally changed his name. I remember once when she wanted to do some modelling, she called herself Jip Jones. She was very elegant and could look stunning if you liked that boyish, whippet-like figure. But she was never really cut out for the discipline of modelling. Being a model, you've got to be on call the whole time. You can't just be swanning off because somebody's having a party or doing a concert down the road. So she sort of gave it up. It was then time to go back to New York. Main Man had moved most of its operations stateside and had very swanky offices on Park Avenue. De Vries encouraged Bowie to behave like a star with a personal assistant and a 24-hour limo and he took to it like a duck to water. Many of the people who joined Bowie's entourage and worked for Main Man came through Andy Warhol's Pork Show, which had absolutely captivated David when he had first seen it in New York. When the show transferred to London, David and I, together with Angie, De Vries and Freddie Beretti, went to see it at the Roundhouse in Camden Town, 
and once the run was over, David suggested to de Vries that they hire some of the people who had been involved, which was how Tony Zanetta, Cherry Vanilla, Lee Black Childers and Wayne County came to join Main Men. Tony Zanetta, who played the Warhol role in Pork, went on to become de Vries's right-hand man and was road manager on David's American Ziggy, Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs tours. Cherry Vanilla was, and still is, a fabulous woman, loud and sassy, and you couldn't miss her, as she had bright red hair, which was very unusual in those days. Officially, she was Bowie's publicist, and her marketing technique famously involved offering a blowjob to any disc jockey who would play his records. But that's how the rumour goes. <laughs> she was bubbly, effervescent, and had a mad horizontal life, maybe even more mad than mine. Not many people had tattoos in those days, but she had some cherries tattooed just above her boobs and she made sure that the top of her dresses were low enough so that you could see them. She was a total original. Leeback Childers was a peroxide blonde who was also a member of Andy Warhol's factory. He was appointed vice president of the main man office in New York, as well as being David's personal photographer. He also got involved in organising some of David's tours. Sadly, he's no longer on this planet. Wayne County was one of the more extraordinary characters who used to hang around the main man offices, and that is saying something. He is known as the first transgender singer in rock, and I got to know him quite well. He was always outrageous and outspoken, and once said, I used to work for David Bowie, and we had a very brief fling, but he was ripping me off like crazy. He took my song Queen Age Baby and changed it around to Rebel Rebel. Then he took my Wayne at the Trucks show and changed it to Diamond Dogs. Oh, it goes on and on. Plus, he's a horrible kisser. Well, <laughs> that's Wayne County's quotes. Wayne later became known for recording songs that could never be played on the BBC, such as Fuck Off, Toilet Love, Fucked by the Devil, Goddess of Wet Dreams. <laughs> In the late 1970s, he changed his name to Jane. And I saw him a few years later when Steve Strange put on a show in Islington, which Wayne Jane performed at. He came on stage wearing a red nylon baby doll, see-through shorty nighty, showing his recently acquired tits. There was a party after the show. And as I was chatting to him, I said, excuse me, but I've never felt false tits before, so may I? And he said, fine, yes, so I had a quick feel. Rock solid they were, absolutely rock solid. Tony Cherry, Lee, Wayne Jane and Jamie Andrews were all part of the Mayman Circus, but were by no means the only ones. The more quirky and weird and wonderful they were, the happier everyone was, especially de Vries. Image really mattered, and the Mayman logo became iconic. We had T-shirts, postcards and stickers made up, and we were all busy getting the name out there, putting stickers up wherever we went. David and Angie invited me into their spacious suite at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel and I stayed with them for a couple of months. Their three-year-old son Zoe and his nanny Marion were also there. In his teenage years, Zoe called himself Joey but now calls himself Duncan Jones and has become a successful film director. David and Angie and I all had our own rooms but didn't usually sleep in them. It was a bit like musical beds. Mick Jagger was staying across the road at the plaza and he did come over to visit quite often. Everyone was so out of it then that I'm amazed anybody remembers anything. Mick would normally come round to see David, but sometimes when he wasn't there, or if 
David was out clubbing, he'd hang out with me and Angie at the suite to hang out with us girls. There was nothing unusual about Mick coming round. Just because he's a rock star, he's no different to anyone else. If you're sitting in your luxury hotel and have mates staying just round the corner, you'll go and hang out with them. So over he came to the Sherry Netherlands, we'd order up some room service and everyone would get stoned and then whoever was still able to function at the end of the night would usually end up in bed together. That's just the way it was. Angie really loved shopping, and when we went out, she used to buy me several pairs of Manolo Blahnik shoes in different colours. She was the same with clothes. Sometimes she'd buy me six outfits, same design, different colours. She also bought me about 20 pairs of Janet Riga French knickers, which were made out of the most fantastic coloured silks, edged with bits of white lace. They were kind of horny for those that wanted to push the gusset to one side. Hmm... It didn't matter if it was day or night, there was always lots to do. It was shopping all day with Angie, then up all night partying, with everything being bankrolled by DeFries and Mainman. God knows how we ever got any sleep. Everything was paid for, first-class airline tickets, 24-7 limos, credit cards, the lot. RCA must have given DeFries an advance, but neither David nor I bothered to question where the money was coming from. We were too busy having a great time. At the beginning of that chapter, you mentioned Freddie Baretti, another regular flatmate of David and Angie's, a great friend of theirs, and also he and Daniela Palmer, very important for David's aesthetic at the time. When David and Angie were in Oakley Street off the King's Road, Freddie was in the basement flat... Uh, which was incredibly convenient. He was lovely looking. He was very stunning looking. In a way, one had the feeling that he looked like what David would have liked to look like in a weird way. So he was very naturally dressed, and so was Daniela. I mean, he used her as a clothes horse. She was absolutely wonderfully dressed, and he was a, a great tailor. And, and quite often I'd arrive at Oakley Street and Freddie would be there pinning David into some, you know, marvellous outfit of his. And quite a lot of the iconic outfits that he wore had been made up by Freddie. The problem also was, though, because although David did try and promote him, he couldn't actually sing. And you can go so far by looking good, but if you can't actually sing, it's very hard to keep a gig together. So he kind of disappeared and everything changed of course when David went off to America. Another good friend of yours you mentioned in there speaking of aesthetics at the time one of the fashion world's most acclaimed makeup artists Pierre Laroche. Yeah Pierre when I look at picture Pierre Laroche really was I mean every woman needs a gay friend and he was obviously gay and fabulous sadly now dead but he was he was great looking himself with a nice sweet French accent and you know he'd done makeup for Jagger and then he did a lot of the famous makeup for Bowie and you know the I think he did the the Aladdin same he did all the famous symbols you know he it was Pierre Laroche who did all of this and men singers weren't really using makeup artists in those days David in a way was the first okay Keith Richards and Mick used to put some coal on their eyes or something. But, I mean, David went to further extremes. Well, obviously, Boland stuck a bit of glitter and sequins on as well. But I think that thanks to Pierre Laroche, David was able to take men's makeup to a higher level. You know, he also, Pierre used to live 
down the road from me and he had an Indian guru at the time so we often used to talk about Indian things and when he died he left all his Indian books and paraphernalia from India to me which I have on my top floor. And another larger-than-life character you mentioned in that chapter, Lionel Bart, a regular visitor to David and Angie's many parties and also a close acquaintance to many of the main man staff at the time. Lionel Bart really was a Londoner through and through, an East End boy. I mean, you know, he really was a fantastic guy and so talented. People forget that he wrote From Russia With Love and not just Oliver and uh, Twang. and uh, He was the only man at the time to have five musicals running in the West End. But, you know, he was full of stories. And I think when he was in the little house around the corner from me, I used to get such great stories. I mean, I remember he told me one story, by the way, that when Oliver had opened at the theatre and, you know, the author always stands at the back and he was so worried and nervous that everyone would hate the show that he decided to go next door into the pub where the doors were open and he could hear what he thought was applause and he thought they were all shouting awful, awful at the end of the opening night so he just had another drink and stayed put until they came and winkled him out of the bar because they hadn't been saying awful, awful, they'd been saying author, author. So... You know, he was just full of great stories. And, yes, uh, you couldn't not, in a way, like him. I mean, I adored him. He got quite difficult when he drank too much. Um, and he and I had to share... We shared a bedroom in, in Mustique. I invited him with me to Mustique. And uh, we had, thank God, twin beds. But, you know, we had such a lot of laughs. He was so talented. And I always say anyone that can write... The immortal lines from Living Doll, I'm going to lock her up in a trunk so no big hunk can steal her away from me. What a great line. You know, he just was absolutely talented. And he wrote a fantastic musical called Quasimodo, which was going to star Chris Farlow. But at that time, he was probably at his most irresponsible and having far too much of a riotous time. Unfortunately, drink was the worst of it in a way. You know, I've got a bit of a downer on drink, but I've seen it ruin too many people's talent. And I think he sold Quasimodo to about five different people because he needed the money. And sadly, the show never, ever got heard. And they were great songs. I don't know who's got the songs, but it was Chris Farlow and Madeline Bell were singing on the demos. Fabulous it was. But, yeah, no, he was great. He was, you know, nicely Jewish and just a hoot at parties. You know, he was Mr Party. He used to have a big bowl of money at the end of his bed because he'd leave it there for trade to help themselves at the end of a night. And he always said it was quite extraordinary because sometimes he'd wake up in the morning and find that somebody else had put money in instead of just the young lads taking money. But anyway, there are loads of X-rated stories, so, I sh- I, you know, you don't really need to know them. That's Dana Gillespie recalling moments from her memoir, Weren't Born a Man. And there are some great photographs, articles, telexes and letters from Dana and the Main Man Archive that are part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.